This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about a more casual one, one of my own creation, which we have been laboring under a different title for a long time now. I've been talking with this with Steve for probably months at this point, just thinking about it and calling it the Wells effect, which apparently is a different effect. Yeah, I thought this was a real thing because you kept referring to this Wells effect. And I was like, oh, this is a really good concept. I like it. So I'm looking it up on Google for more information. I'm like, this sounds nothing like what he was telling me about. (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute. This is an actual thing. We need to rename the thing you're talking about. Yeah, so we kind of landed on the less sexy or less concise paradoxical outcomes, which is more descriptive than it is anything else. So I guess that's it's helpful in that way. But the Wells effect, as I was originally calling it, is based off of H.G. Wells' time machine. And this is the definition of the concept that any action you take to stop a particular outcome ends up causing that particular outcome. It's a common trope in any sci-fi time travel sort of story, but it is also something that we see in our everyday lives. In fact, we had one example of that right as we were about to record this. Steve, do you want to tell them about that? Right. And I guess in my uh, attempt to be efficient and brief in my communications with you about what time we were recording, you completely didn't understand what I was saying, leading to a minutes long back and forth through audio and me clarifying, which I could have clarified in a few words in my original (laughs) message. Yeah, exactly. He cut too close to the bone. He started cutting off some muscle there because by trying to trim the fat, he got a little little cut happy there. He (laughs) he said parched is the one word. And I'm like, what does that mean? How is that? at all helpful for me to figure out when we're starting to record if it would have been like parched drinking or getting a drink five minutes or something like that or five minutes alone would have been concise enough but instead no we had a back and forth being like what do you mean what does that mean how long is that going to be i responded by saying it's hot outside (laughs) (laughs) like oh really i could have guessed the cause of the thirst but i still don't know what time (laughs) we're recording at so yeah this is the kind of silliness that ends up happening from this i started thinking about it actually around christmas time when my family was almost universally vaccinated and we were on a small town fairly low covid rates at the time and this is an important facet of it. It was a, during the times of COVID, of course, as anybody listening now will know, but in the future may not. So we were trying to figure out how we would do our first Christmas gathering since COVID began. And we were trying to think about it because like, I think the government had put in restrictions for the number of people that could gather. And we were slightly over that, depending, because some people would show up and some people would leave. And so I was thinking, well, we could have some people standing outside because then technically they're not gathering inside, which means that if we are caught, then we could be like, oh, well, we're not all inside. Some of us are outside, which means that these are separate gatherings, kind of. And it's more safe this way, you see. But the very act of trying to mitigate whatever punishment might come from the police would also draw more attention from the police because there's people milling about outside, thus giving proof that there is a gathering going on. Oh, interesting. So in trying to avoid some kind of punishment, you're actually increasing the odds that it'll happen and hence paradoxical outcome, our concept. Yes. 
Exactly. Like I said, this is going to be a more casual one because this is not actual academic research. There's no research other than just sitting around and thinking, oh, that this is an example of this I've noticed. And oh, this is another example I've noticed because I don't know that this is an actual area of research. Maybe <laughs> I don't even know how I'd begin to find this research on that, but we didn't find any. So it's just more us talking about this idea. Well, it's a theme that we just see coming up in so many different areas, particularly in social skills. It's quite prominent, but I'm sure it's in other areas like engineering. It's in psychology, from what I know about acceptance and commitment therapy. Maybe I'll share it because there is some research around around this. Good. It's not just us shooting <laughs> off the cuff. Yeah. You know, the six pillars of ACT. Remind one us. Of the, the first one being acceptance, acceptance and commitment therapy. And if you're unwilling to accept something, it makes it more likely to persist and control you in your life. Hmm. What you resist persists. What you resist persists. And for example, if you can't think about something, if you are unwilling to go to a particular difficult thought or emotion or something that happened to you in the past, if you're unwilling to face it, suppress it, repress it, it has a paradoxical outcome of actually controlling you more in unintended ways. And it comes about and the thing that you're trying to not think about has more power over you if you're unwilling to to go there. Oh, I mean, that makes me think of two different examples. One is somebody I used to date who would not acknowledge that she had anxiety, thus ensuring that the anxiety continues because she cannot get help for it. And so it was just like a cyclical thing, which caused more anxiety because she just had no tools to deal with it, wouldn't acknowledge it, but constantly kept feeling it. The other one was thinking that you're exempt from a particular psychological bias or something along those lines. And by thinking you're immune to it, you won't consider it or fact it in, thus making you more susceptible to it. Like I see this all the time. I just I just saw on Reddit there's left people talking about the right, basically saying they do confirmation bias, implying we do not. But it's like, no, we all have these biases. When I'm talking here, a lot of the time I may sound like I don't believe these apply to me, but no, it's more I'm reminding myself and preaching to myself about how these things actually are taking place and how I need to keep them in mind. Though I know that may not be how it comes off. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm above psychological what's it called biases fallacies yeah yeah logical fallacies i've read the whole wikipedia page on logical fallacies i've studied them yeah i'm above it actually that's <laughs> another one sort of right now we're just talking about paradoxes to a degree but this one was i'm not super into the rationalist community but this is one of my toes dipped into it this is an article on slate star codex which is one of the more prominent rationalist people. And he has this article called The Cowpox of Doubt. And his thinking about this is that when we talk about irrationality or conspiracy thinking or biases, typically we talk about ridiculous things, things that most people don't take seriously at all, like lizard people or the earth being flat or something along those lines. And he sees this as the cowpox of doubt, cowpox being the thing we inoculated ourselves with to fight off smallpox way back when smallpox was a huge issue. And in this way, Way, he's saying that by seeing irrationality as being so blatantly obvious that it slaps you in the face, that we're actually making it so that we are less likely to notice flawed thinking and irrationality because it's teaching us that it's always going to be obvious and never going to be subtle. It's always going to be this big thing that only a fool would believe. And so thus, we are not fools. So we will not fall for these tricks. Oh, right. 
So hence, like philosophical thought experiments, it would be more useful if we use like realistic everyday examples rather than like the trolley problem, for example. Like there's no situation that you're going to actually be in where there's like a literal trolley going to like hit down five people and you have to switch the lever to only hit one, you know, the trolley classic problems in philosophy. But if we can think of more practical examples, it seems more subtle and we're more skeptical about our everyday life rather than thinking like oh, I'll know it when I see it. When that trolley is going on that track, like, but there's so many more subtle ways that we could think about these things. It doesn't get our confidence or our hubris up too much, I guess. Yeah, I guess the whole through line of, of the entire time I, we were leading up to this episode, I was like, what will the takeaway be? I think it's more just paying attention to when these things happen and sometimes kind of leaning into them. So this particular one, the logical fallacy one of like that irrationality is always going to be obvious. That's harder because like you have to notice that that's going on for you to even address it. And that's the most difficult part. If you're aware of it, then it's already going to be less of an issue. But let's let's go back to more tangible things like ignoring something, hoping it'll go away. Not just in the logical fallacy. Realm. No, because we're talking about actions. I think the social realm is a really nice practical area to talk about paradoxical outcomes. Did you want to kind of get into that stuff first? Yeah, I think one of the ones that I have a whole list of a bunch of them going on. One of them is when you're not guilty, but you're attempting to convince others that you're not guilty can be interpreted as a sign of guilt. Oh. Oh, yeah, that's a common one. Yeah. So like, how would you go about avoiding that outcome? Because it seems like, honestly, whenever people look at people on the stand or anything to do with testimonial witnesses or trying to determine whether somebody's lying, any sign can be taken in any way. If you lean into it, they will see that as a, a form of guilt. If you don't say anything, that could be seen as a form of guilt. If you look a little too gleeful, that could be seen as a form of guilt. It doesn't <laughs> prove anything anyway, a lot of the time. So I guess if you're the one being accused, there's not much you can do that I can see other than just being as honest as you can. And if you're judging these things, be aware that we are really bad at guessing the intentions of other people a lot of the time. And if you try too hard to appear a certain way, it will likely be taken as the opposite. Yeah. Like trying to get somebody to like you by buying them a lot of stuff or fawning over them. Oh, this is this is relevant in the dating realm. Even in the friend realm, honestly. like In the friend realm too. Yeah. yeah. If you want to be friends with somebody, you have to be more natural and just kind of casual with it. The best I've ever been when meeting new people, either in the romantic sense or just a social sense, is just kind of acting like you already know them, acting like you're already friends. In fact, <laughs> there's been times at the bar where I mistook somebody as somebody else and I walked up and just started speaking really casually with them and it ended up really going well and I didn't realize until a little, little while later that they were not the same person. They're actually a complete stranger and I just happened to stumble across this sort of, I guess, cheat <laughs> I, I actually did that many times in my past due to poor facial recognition, I guess. Actually, that's how I met one of my high school friends, you know, John. It was in grade nine, like second day of school or something. I was walking into the classroom and from a distance, I thought he looked like someone I already knew. So I just walked right up to his table, sat down, like said hi casually. I wouldn't have been like that so easily back then, I guess. I was a little bit more awkward, one may say. You were grade nine. Of course you were. Yeah. But, you know, and that's why. He, he was like, oh, you look super friendly when you walked up to me. I was like, yeah, because I thought you were someone else. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell him that, but it's interesting because when I met you, it didn't go so smoothly. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I think I told this story at your wedding, actually, where I showed up early to class because I know that generally in classes in our high school, wherever you sat the first day was where you would sit the rest of the whole semester, probably. So I showed up early on purpose, found the seat in the back corner that I wanted to sit in, which is the furthest seat from the door. And then the second person to walk in was Steve, who in this completely empty room could have sat literally anywhere, took
took his time walking all the way around the entire classroom and sat directly next to me, which some might say is more socially adept, but I don't believe you even started a conversation with me. I think you just sat down and didn't say a word. I believe that would be the case, yes. I think in that case, you're actually falling prey to this concept as well because you were trying to be less awkward and in trying to be less awkward, you were way more awkward as a result. Yeah, I kind of vaguely remember the sense that like, oh no, what do I do? There's one person sitting there. I don't know who he is. Hmm, what's the normal thing to do? Um, Just sit next to him. (laughs) Like, I don't know. There's no social protocol, you know. It's not like elementary school where you have your, like, assigned seat and your group of friends and it's all structured. So going into high school, for me, it was like this whole new realm of learning social norms. And so in trying to be less awkward, I did something that apparently is quite awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how you sat anywhere else, like not talking to me would have been fine. Sitting right next to me, I think it provokes some sort of like acknowledgement. But yeah, I think that was grade 10. So I mean, actually, we didn't speak like at all. We actually had a whole class together before that in gym class, but I don't think we ever spoke like more than a couple words that entire semester somehow. It wasn't until this particular class, but you choosing to sit there, did we become such good friends all the way till now. Well, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah, definitely. It was too big of a school. Yeah, right. Here's one that I've fallen prey to too many times. I think I mentioned this in one of the recent episodes, maybe the last episode, but trying to force somebody into a habit or play a game or something that you want to do, but they're not super keen on. Oh, I love this. I think you mentioned it last time where it's like you make the game and the characters and you say, you won't have to do a thing. Just show up. I got it. Like, is that like your D&D stuff? You're yeah, but it's to? also other things too. Because I think this is something I've noticed in myself that I actually, I think I took from motivational interviewing that I kind of fixed my approach with this, which is asking permission. Because normally I think people like this, they are afraid you're going to say no, or they really just want a yes. So they just assume the yes and force it onto you. But they've never gotten your consent and so it's like getting you to watch a video or watch a movie or something whatever it is if you just say hey do you mind if i show you this or hey what do you think about doing this or just getting somebody to consent you're asking them to do it if they give you a reason no then maybe another time but if you force it on them then they're going to try to avoid you whenever this topic comes up or they they will feel uncomfortable a lot of the time which can damage the relationship a little bit yeah i think motivational interviewing is is a really prime example of of how to not do this. In the realm of influence and, and persuasion, social dynamics, that in trying to help someone stop an addiction, you really have to let go and they have to perceive that it's their choice. They can go either way and you're not going to judge them. And it's really hard to do because you're like, oh, I want them to, you know, you really want them to, you want it to go well. But the more you want it, the more pressure it puts on them, the less choice they feel less autonomy, which is a part of self-determination theory is intrinsic motivation. When you take away someone's autonomy, they are going to resist to get their autonomy back. So the more you try, the more you take away their freedom of choice, their sense of autonomy, and they go the other direction. And so motivational interviewing is about rolling with resistance rather than resisting resistance. <laughs> rolling with it being like, okay, so you're not ready right now. Okay, let's let's look at something else or let's try something different. Or if they're frustrated, you sit with that and connect with that rather than shame them for something and say, well, you should have. Do you really want this? You know? Yeah. Just hearing you say that, I'm just thinking about how I was basically just nagging somebody before we recorded to do something that... <laughs> you were nagging someone today? Yeah. Because... 
is something that is very important to their business. They've been saying for several weeks that they're going to, they should, they should. And it's something that even if they take the steps now, the payoff will still probably take some time. It's just like the most important thing they could do in their business. And I think it's because it's the most important thing to do in their business that they are not doing it. But by me nagging it, and it's so it's like there's already that pressure going on. And then I'm nagging them, putting even more pressure on socially now. And so it's just making it become even more of a thing. So now I'm just like, I don't know, how can I get out of this this mess? What's their response right now? That it's on their to-do list and they will get around to it, but they've been saying that for a while. So more stuckness likely. Possibly. Maybe not because there's been upheaval in their life. Like it's not been super stable. I, I can see the legitimate reasons why, but it's also something that I feel like it's a lot of emotional baggage because it's an action that will only take maybe an hour of work, maybe at most. Oh, I've had many of those on... <laughs> You've nagged me for like a year about changing my video thumbnail on my website. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't change it a single time when you nagged me. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I was like, hey, I changed that randomly. Yeah. And that's the thing about these is that there may not have been a particular thing that we were even aware of. Just sometime all the stars seem to align in our heads that were like, you know what? I'm going to do this. Why didn't I do this before? It was so easy. And I mean, all of us have those things. And it's like, why couldn't I have just done that thing? Part of it is the emotional baggage. Like, oh, I got to do this thing. Oh, I got to figure this thing out, especially if it's technical or, oh, this is really important. I I can't screw it up. So then you just don't take any action. I I don't know. What do you think? Uh, This reminds me of perfectionism. The more you want something to be perfect, the less likely you are to even do it at all. Yeah. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, I think, I don't remember which book it was. It may have been a Gay Hendricks book, but they were talking about how keeping something in the future means that it's always a, a realm of possibilities. It's always in the, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that, but taking any actual choice towards moving forward it puts things in the now. Oh, no, wait, it was a meditation conversation on Sam Harris's app. We'll try to find a link to that. But he's just saying that by taking actual steps means you have to take actual choices, which limits the possibilities that it can be now. Like by choosing red, it can no longer be blue or yellow or whatever thing you have in your head. And by actually making it into a reality, it takes it out of, I guess, platonic realm of the forms, like the, the perfect possibility that it could be and brings it down to the profane, realistic life that it is. And that is often unbearable when we want things to be great. So his take was just take any minor irrevocable step. For me, it was this trip. I had a ton of anxiety over figuring out how I was going to get to Brazil, where I was going to live, all the different decisions I had to make. And so I was just like, okay, let's just pick a date and buy a ticket. So then that's the forced framing device. We've talked about this in the past where giving unlimited freedom for a creative project makes it so it's extremely anxiety provoking and intimidating and you just are less likely to do anything. But By putting these restrictions on, it actually makes you have more freedom. It reminds me of that phrase, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. How too much freedom causes you to feel anxiety because you're just like, oh no, like I I can do anything, so I don't know what to do. I even just say that Instagram thing. I'm going to stop free associating and let you respond first. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is because we've been talking about paradoxical outcomes as a as a negative thing, but I think you just touched into how it's a positive thing because. In constraining yourself, you have given yourself more freedom right now rather than being stuck in a place that you didn't want to be, paying too much money. You constrained yourself by just booking the trip and doing it, which led to ultimately more freedom in the long term there. I'm not sure I see the connection to the concept. Well, it's, it's almost like a paradox. In constraining yourself, you gave yourself more freedom. Ah, uh, hmm. Yeah, I guess that's the positive side. Yeah, you're right. Putting it plainly like that does make more sense. <laughs> so... What I was talking about, I would have kept going on about, but your insight is actually quite valuable for this conversation because it can be a good thing, was similar vein. 
constraining yourself being more freeing was this Instagram post. This girl has some genius posts, this woman, whatever you want to call her. She was saying, okay, today's my day off. And it's like, she's trying clearly the, the underlying message is she's trying to maximize the pleasure or productivity or just maximize the time she has off. And so first she's like, I should work on those projects on my long list of things that I should do. No, I should stop and I should relax and I should recharge. No, I should do chores and make my house look nice. And so then she's stuck cycling through these things and ultimately doesn't choose any of them, which is to choose anxiety, really, because the only way out of this is to choose one and to be fully committed to that, not thinking, oh, I could be doing this or I should be doing that. Just picking one and going with it so then you can actually enjoy that one thing. Right. So an example of constraining yourself to have the freedom of enjoyment. Some of that reminded me of this idea of like when you really, really intend to have fun, like, yeah, it's going to be such a fun night. We're going to have so much fun tonight. It's New Year's Eve. (laughs) You know, we have to have so much fun because it's New Year's Eve. It happens once a year and look at everyone else. You know, So in doing that, I find it's often the least fun. Yeah, there's too much pressure. (laughs) Because there's literally a countdown to it. It's like you got to have everything like situated. You got to like have everything together. It's hardest to do things because everything's busiest and it's the most annoying thing. And your expectations are way up here and it's never as good as you want it to be. Yeah, I remember this one time we had this discussion because the Black Eyed Peas song was a top 40 song on the radio at the time. Tonight's going to be a good night. I was just thinking of that song. I hated whenever it came on early (laughs) in the night. Because I was thinking of this every time. So then I remember thinking at the time, okay, so what? Should we just be pessimistic and assume it's going to be a bad night? Because then <laughs> then either you're going to be right or you'll be quote unquote disappointed and have a good or neutral night. And I think that's also wrong because there's a third option there, right? What's that? To have no expectations and to just take it as it comes. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not like you're going to show up and say, oh, it's going to be a bad night. And then everyone's saying, tonight's going to be a good night. <laughs> and you're like, bad night. <laughs> and like Everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, I'm just trying to have a paradox. I'm setting my expectations low so I'll never be disappointed. How pessimistic can you be? It's true that, yes, you won't be disappointed, but like you will constantly be undermining any good times that do come along because you're like, no, no, it's going to be bad. So it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Yeah. So either way. But it's funny because whenever that song used to come on, like I would kind of think of this, especially early in the night, because I would be like, oh, no, don't set the expectations too high. I kind of (laughs) just noticed the paradox within that, because like if we focus on tonight's going to be a good night, that can have a paradoxical outcome because depending on how good you expect it to be to be a good night you may be disappointed so that's the paradoxical outcome we're talking about but then on the low end if you focus on the negative it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy so why do you think it is that the negative can be self-fulfilling but the positive will not be self-fulfilling but they can both be self-fulfilling because maybe if you say tonight's gonna be a good night and it puts you in a positive attitude you look for opportunities you're having more fun like it can be self-fulfilling either way i don't know what makes it paradoxical versus self-fulfilling i think i mean if you're a very positive person then yeah it may be self-fulfilling on the top side but i think it's tonight's going to be a good night and i guess the underlying is like or else it was a waste is kind of the unstated part but i think if you say today is a good day like it's fine we're alive even if things seem bad i can choose to look at the positive things in life yes life is pain and there's a lot of suffering in the world but right now i'm doing okay and i'm not in jail and i've got my mobility or whatever positive things we've got that we kind of take for granted counting your blessings kind of thing i guess that could help you be put in a better positive mindset to make it self-fulfilling So instead of tonight's going to be a good night, it's like, I'm going to try to have a good night. (laughs) Or or maybe just whatever happens, it will be a good story or whatever happens, there will be something positive to take away from it. 
like everything is bad girls throw drinks in your face guys keep like being a jerk to you and you get laughed at on the dance floor but i guess even if you're the heel of all these things, if you wanted to be positive, you could say like dissolve the ego and say, I was a source of an entertainment for other people. I was able to make other people feel good. Um, that's, that's kind of weird. I would say at least it's a good story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all these things, I guess. But I mean, also, you could say like, oh, but I was able to help this other person by like clearing the dance floor a little bit or just minor acts of kindness can still be done, even if those things are there. I think you actually gave me the stoic journal, which I have had for over a year now, I think. And I brought it on this trip just to use it. And I have been using it. And one of the framing devices that it's given the past week has been very useful of is this within my control or not? We can't control whether the outcome of something is good or whether we enjoy it, but we can control the actions we took during that was I the person I wish to be during this night even though everyone else was being a bunch of dicks and the whole thing didn't work out I still lived the way that I think I should be I didn't give into cynicism and start being cruel to other people I was still kind despite people being cruel to me and that's a positive that does very much remind me of the act uh, pillars of values versus is uh, acceptance so choosing your values because that's something you always have a choice at which is very stoic these these things and acceptance of that which you do not have control over part of the serenity prayer and when you can let go of the outcome accept that you don't have control over the night and not have to cling to it's going to be a good night or else <laughs> then you might have the paradoxical outcome when letting go you actually are more likely to get what you wanted yeah like i said for wearing something really gaudy to the club i don't know why the club has been a constant theme here Let's say <laughs> there's going to be another theme of the club after this story yeah probably oh yeah there is yeah it's a perfect segue but i was going to say is wearing say a very gaudy suit to the club let's say like a fluorescent pink suit if you go and you're worried about how people are going to treat you, then people will treat you badly. Guys will start mocking you and like people might start like like laughing at you openly if you're showing self-consciousness. But if you commit to saying, I'm wearing the suit and I'm going to like just go in and be like, yeah, then it goes from like a negative to a great positive. I say like it's one of those polarizing things where wearing that gaudy suit like I guess peacocking as the pickup people would say, but I don't particularly like that. But if, if you are in this context, you have to commit because if you don't commit, it's like a negative five to charisma. But if you do commit, it's like a positive five to charisma. It's not going to be neutral. It will either be amazing or terrible. So onto your story of a paradoxical outcome. Uh, actually, how old were we? I think we were late university, 21-ish. Yeah, somewhere around there. We were in a local club and Phil was single. I was not, but my goal here was to assist Phil in acquiring an acquaintance of the evening. In chatting up a girl, let's just say, and getting a number, whatever you want. <laughs> I was trying to help him out in picking up, let's just say. And I guess the social skills were not so good at that time <laughs> for, for me. And I mean, we were both learning a lot of our social skills from books at that time. Oh, that makes it sound so bad. More like we had social skills. We weren't completely inept. It was more like we were trying to get even more adept. But the problem with this is this is another paradoxical outcome. By focusing on social skills, and thinking about them consciously, you're interfering with the natural process, like thinking about how you're walking. If you're in front of an audience, and you're thinking walk normally, you're gonna trip, you're gonna do something stupid with your feet, probably, or you're more likely to. Likewise, when you're like, okay, let's be more 
socially adept, you have to challenge the things you naturally do and try to fix them. And that causes you to trip up this natural process. Yeah. So we were like super geeky. Like we had social skills and, and we were quite intuitive, but we wanted to like be on some like level, athlete, be even yeah, better. Take it to a whole new, like an athlete level. So we were studying <laughs> the social dynamics, watching all these videos on it. We were talking about it all the time, this technique and that technique and the, the phrasing and like neurolinguistic programming in your language. And like ironically about all this though, again, paradoxical is that really just not caring. I, like I've noticed that I just naturally do a bunch of stuff by not caring, like by just being considerate and taking other people's perspectives and considering how I'm coming off and just aiming to be considerate to the person's feelings causes me to be better overall. It causes you to do all the things that you would have wanted to do when you were studying them, but couldn't because we were trying too hard. And so the, there's a few times we, we tripped up, but one humorous example in particular was for some reason, I thought it was a good idea to be Phil's wingman and to pretend he was a celebrity. Yeah, he was being my hype man, not my wingman. <laughs> yeah. So he was he was just talking to a woman and for some reason I was just like, no way. Phil Shea, the basketball player. Yeah, he started like <laughs> pretending I was some sort of celebrity and I was just oh, you, oh, so embarrassed. You're 6'7", so you're super tall. Yeah. And so for some reason I randomly thought it'd be a good idea to pretend you were in the NBA. <laughs> Yeah, easily <laughs> verifiable on somebody's smartphone, which existed at the time. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, it was it was bad. Just just a clarification, wing people, you're not there to hype them up, especially female wing people. If you go up to a girl and say, this guy's great, he's amazing. The underlying question is, why is he not good enough for you? <laughs> and why do you have to hype him up if he's yeah, that good? this is another paradoxical outcome. If they're so hyping him the up, opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I forget, like, do you remember me saying that? Do you remember what I was saying specifically and how that felt? Oh, I remember how it felt. I remember being like, oh, God, shit shut up. Just leave me alone. I'd be better if you just didn't step up and say this. It's just so embarrassing and false. And I don't want to play along with this lie. What was her reaction? I think because you and I are both kind of like at odds with one another, it just ended up being confusing and off-putting. And she just, I think, ended up just walking away. There's no reason for her to like try to figure out what the hell is going on with these two idiots. <laughs> when she doesn't know either of us very well. Just a, a point of clarification for what a wing person is to do. It's to entertain the friends and let the person talk to the person they want to get to know. That's the goal, to make it so they can have some one-on-one -on -one conversation without a group like standing over the shoulder. Not to be the hype man, which clearly doesn't work. Paradoxical outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm just jumping to another thing in my notes. Well, we already talked about the thing that happened before the recording, which was haste makes waste. That by rushing, you actually end up causing yourself to have to take even more time, like speeding and getting stopped for a ticket on the way to work. Like you ended up costing yourself both money and time because you got stopped. There's a military phrase that reminds me of this. They say, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Oh, I always thought that was martial arts. But yeah, I've heard of that too. Yeah. Slow so is smooth and smooth is fast. In essence, slow is fast. <laughs> paradox. I think it's more having something practiced slowly. Like right now I'm trying to learn Portuguese and a lot of the pronunciations are very different from French and not what I expect. So I have to practice saying them and I find I'm trying to speed up the pronunciation, but that's not smart. It's like learning a song. You have to play it correctly, slowly until you can speed up because you can't speed up until you have it correct in general. Otherwise you're going to make mistakes. Or you just play it fast right from the beginning and it sounds good enough. <laughs> Yeah, if you're just like playing at a bar or a ragtime tune with your friends, sure. Not if you're trying to compete somewhere. Okay, another one that is more close to your wheelhouse is guilting yourself to change. Shooting on yourself, as they say. Love it. Shooting on yourself, as you said. S-H-O-U-L-D. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. How do you feel when someone says, 
you should change something about yourself. If someone else says it, I find it a bit presumptuous. Like, who are you to tell me what I should or shouldn't do? But yeah, I think it's more, I was thinking more the angle of you can't truly change until you accept who you are or what you are. Like I think it was Carl Rogers-ish kind of take because by being like, ah, I got to change. I hate myself for this. I hate it. You're not able to change. I never really understood how the acceptance part helps get rid of it. What What is your take on this? I've actually learned the inner dynamics of what that's all about within the last little while through internal family systems therapy. It's an exile part, they call it. There's three parts. There's the manager parts, the firefighter parts, and the exile parts. And the exile parts are the parts of us that are living in shame and that we can't think about. Things that maybe we took responsibility for in our childhood that aren't our responsibility, that we feel that if somebody figures this out about me then I will be unlovable, I'm not enough, these types of shamed parts. And so long as you're unwilling to accept those parts, your manager parts and firefighter parts are on high alert, kind of protecting it. It's kind of like a mental inflammation. Yeah, it's keeping that exile part under the surface. So manager parts are things like like kind of anxiety, like low-grade anxiety, like, oh no, should I do this? Oh, what if this happened? That's a manager part protecting an exile part. An addiction is like a firefighter part. It's like, put out the fire and like just escape. Let's deal with those feelings by drowning them in this, this substance. So managers are proactive, firefighters are reactive, but what they're doing is kind of keeping this exile in exile because it can't be seen or faced. I've just recently made that connection between Carl Rogers when he says, only when I can accept myself the way I am, then I can change. And that means going into that exile part, bringing it that adult kind of self-compassion, that perspective that you now have, you're not that child anymore, to look at that child and to, to kind of imagine yourself at that age, what did you need? And for you to actually offer yourself that and to unburden that exiled part, meaning to take away that shame of that inner child. I know that phrase is kind of weird, but go with it there. But it, it unburdens that exile part, which I'll allows it to then be free, which allows the manager and firefighters to dissolve and take other roles and you can then go forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, I suppose. I'm still going to need to think about it a bit more. It's one of those things that I guess because you reject it, you're not able to actually address it. Like that anxiety thing I was talking about before where like she wouldn't acknowledge that she had anxiety. Thus, the anxiety would be ever present and persistent because it could never be dealt with. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That's exactly it. This is more kind of assigning different roles to these parts of us. So the not accepting it part could be a manager that says, don't admit it don't let someone in because if you do then they're going to see that other thing yes nobody can see that other thing this segues perfectly into another one i had here which was fear of rejection causing you to act so hostile that you can't be rejected because you're rejecting people first and i think it stems from the same thing like i am inherently a bad flawed person uniquely so it's kind of narcissistic in a strange way but i am so bad that in a way that as soon as somebody sees this they're going to reject me so i might as well be a dick up front first and foremost and push them away say you deserve better than me go away because <laughs> otherwise i'm just going to be I'm just bad for you. This is a way to kind of protect yourself from these rejections while also paradoxically causing the very outcome you don't want to happen. Yes, yes. Rejecting yourself first, or in other words, self-sabotage, is first a form of self-protection in a way that you're protecting people from seeing this kind of exiled part we referred to, this shame. And the two, relating to intrinsic motivation, you're protecting a sense of autonomy, because if you're doing the rejecting, you're in control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. So there's two parts to that. Yeah. 
And it's similar to, like I talked about before, how the one time I was really into a girl and I told her all my shit, basically up front, right first and foremost, being like, accept this or go away. Like I'm kind of the same thing, except for a different approach to that, where it's like, here, like it, reject me now. If you're going to reject me, don't let me get any closer. Just reject it now or accept it now. And then we can move forward. But that's obviously not a very good way to approach these things. <laughs> Marry me after the first date or don't bother talking to me again is like kind of the more extreme form of that. Oh, uh, yes, I guess. Uh, could come off that way a little bit abrupt. Yes. How did it go? Was she like, uh, yeah, I'm just going to go over here. She stuck around for a bit. She's the Australian girl that got me to go to Australia, but did end up going away as soon as I went there. Any step towards her that was actually okay by her it seemed and she pointed it out actually and she was right and then as things went on i got over that kind of stage every step closer to her caused her to panic and freak out because she was herself anxious avoidant in attachment style so it was kind of like me pushing her away in a way which may have been actually more comfortable to her because i wasn't moving closer and then as we got past that and i started moving closer that caused <laughs> her internal issues to flare right. up right the closer you like you literally moved to her country, which apparently was okay with her. She wanted that. It was like she invited She just wanted to put the idea in my yeah. head, yeah. And then as soon as you do it, you, you fly across the world for her. She went cold. Like, wow. try, you can make it seem like a very romantic story. I wasn't going only for her. No, but, no, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not trying to make it into that. No, not you, of course. But the closer you, you, you attempted to get, the further she got paradoxical outcome and you know it's almost like this i use the analogy of if people have dogs have you ever ran at a dog i'm sure at some point but what do you where is this going so what happens when you run at a dog i guess it depends on the vibe you have when you're running at the dog and the kind of dog right it's a dog you know oh then they sometimes panic or sometimes might think you're playing with them or they'll run, they run away. away they run away okay what happens when you run away from a dog it chases you and i recently realized it's the same with kids you know kids like they like to play chase so if you run at a kid they'll like run away in a spirit of play of course like <laughs> your own kid <laughs> not talking, yeah, you not talking duck children. <laughs> a random kid you just like run at them. no but if like if you have your own kid you run at the kid they run away you're playing chase as soon as you stop run the other direction they start chasing you there's this push-pull dynamic in everyday life, animals to humans, little people in play. But in, in social dynamics more broadly, there's there's usually a push-pull dynamic happening. Yeah. You remember that one time my mom did a pull-push, actually, because there's actually a thing called a push-pull in like pickup. I, I don't recommend doing it consciously, but it is actually a kind of funny joke sometimes where the push is like you subtly deride them and then pull is like you then say, but it's okay because blah, blah, blah. Like it was kind of an insult, but then it was, it turns out to be a compliment, which is maybe the better form because it leaves on the high note. But I remember my mom one time, this is probably the better form of a joke. She said, oh, I really like your scarf, the pull. And then she said, I have the same one. And then the push because a middle-aged woman has the same scarf as this young man. So. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess you could just say, if you wanted to do the same thing, like I really like the thing you're wearing. My grandma owns the same one or something like that. Like you could use that same exact setup if you wanted to jokingly deride somebody. Another one is trying to avoid people noticing your physical flaws, let's say, or some some visible thing you don't like about yourself, causing it to be more prevalent or at least make you like generally we're doing this because we are afraid we'll 
be seen as unattractive or judged or mocked. And the posture you take can make you look worse. Like if you're, you're self-conscious about your height, you might slouch a lot, causing you to look bad. I didn't do it that much. In early high school, a little bit. I mean, yeah, probably then. But the other one is, and this I did not do. I just saw it a lot in China. And that's why I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was like losing your hair and then having like that single strand going over the top of your head, like a single, single bundle of hairs, like Homer Simpson, like stretched across the top of your head to make it seem like I've still got hair. It's still there. And it's like, you're not fooling anybody. Just get rid of it. <laughs> or I remember in grade school, I had a friend who she had a pimple on her face. And so she had long hair and she just strangely drapes it over that specific part of her face trying to <laughs> get it to not be noticed <laughs> but obviously you're gonna be like what are you doing if you just said yeah i got a pimple like and just owned it but of course teenagers are not able to do that at the time drape it over one part of your forehead yeah, just awkwardly it was on her i think her nose so it was just like straight across her face and it's like she never wore her hair like that normally so it just was super drawing the eye or i don't know like acting natural works a lot better but some people just can't like you're trying to blend into a crowd if you are trying to blend in too hard you might stand out that much more right it's like just act natural just act natural and the more you try to act natural like the weirder you yeah come on i guess the better advice is relax whatever happens it'll be fine that may not always be true depending on how dire the circumstances are you have to accept the uncertainty though you, you say relax maybe yes maybe no I'm going to focus on what I can control. Kind of like what we said before, which is better than just got to act natural. Just got to act natural. <laughs> yeah, just like cycling in your head about this thing. And you're like, I can't, but I can't. It's kind of like self-affirmations. This reminds me of that story I think I told before of having to jump between between buildings in Toronto. And it was like a three-story fall. And I'm a bit scared of heights, which for some reason, because I'm tall, people find that paradoxical. I don't know why we all die if we fall. You're only a few inches taller than people. Yeah. So therefore, I'm like an expert of heights. Like I can fly now. Like it's fine. No, if anything, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But anyway, I, I had to jump across this hole and I kept fixating on like what would happen if I screwed up. And I just had to like breathe and say, the more I fixate on that, the more likely it's going to happen. So I just have to just pretend this is just like a curb or a puddle on the side of the road and just go with it. And so the same thing you're talking about, focusing on what you can do, not on the feared outcome, because it seems like focusing on something is more likely to evoke it in some weird pseudoscientific way. Yeah, what you resist persists. But what I'm wondering is, why were you jumping between two buildings in the third story? Like, what, what kind of like parkour were you up to? <laughs> it was during the Canada Day Parade in Toronto, and it was a really good vantage point. So a friend of mine had friends that were up there, and she led us up there. Okay. I'm not just climbing buildings for fun. Well, I guess in this example, I was, but <laughs> like I, I have never found myself in that in a situation like that, nor do I think many people do. I think you might be able to say that of a bunch of situations I found myself in, like being an actor in China at one point, even though I'm not an actor. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were a, a business actor, an actor pretending to be what a director of finance no, or something no that's illegal i was not doing that i don't know for sure what it was for i was paid to be an actor and to stand on stage and to read a script on a camera and whatever they did with that i don't know for certain they may have broken the law using that by using actors to pretend to be something else i was just an actor in the circumstances and i kind of just wanted to see what it was to say that i did it but yeah it is probably unscrupulous and it's why i only did it once but it was partially for the money and partially to tell a story of course yeah it's a very interesting story i didn't realize i was stepping into dangerous territory i mean i don't want to incriminate myself in any way like <laughs> borderline a couple of times because like skirting covid restrictions possibly maybe not 
Likely not. Definitely not. And this other thing, which I don't know what laws exist around that, but I was not breaking any laws. The company may have been with how they treat the material afterwards. Uh-oh. Two years ago on Christmas, COVID police are going to be on you. <laughs> it's never good to publicly admit to breaking the law. And I have not done that. So just to be clear, no, <laughs> just to be 100% on that. And in trying to be extra kosher, we're coming off very suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, so paradoxical. It's because you keep drilling on it. Just let it drop. I didn't do anything illegal. I'm not admitting to doing anything illegal. Nothing illegal I was in some strange situations. That's it. So moving on to the next topic, Putin invaded Ukraine. Well, some people argue to prevent the more united Europe and to stop Ukraine from joining the EU. But in doing so, he caused Europe to be more united against him. So this is another way that like this happens on the international stage as well, where it's kind of like the law of unintended consequences, which we kind of talked about in one episode i can't remember which one because it wasn't that concept survivorship bias maybe it was one it was one of our earlier episodes but yeah that's how this can happen or design it was in the design thinking episode no it wasn't in that one anyway that's another one another one is i'm, I'm almost out of my list that's why and we're running out of time is that procrastination is kind of paradoxical because i found that when you're able to control your own schedule if you don't have a good schedule where you start the day being productive if you start the day with leisure you end up in this weird zone where you aren't really enjoying the leisure because you constantly have this thing hanging over your head about the things you need to do. And then that causes you to have anxiety, which then stops you from taking action and kind of locks you into this unenjoyable leisure. And it kind of, it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of like, oh, I have this thing to do, but I really don't want to do that thing. If I stop doing this and like kind of what I've talked about many times, like if I start, then I won't be able to break away from it until it's done. Right. Right. Yeah. These are good examples. Then the thing I told you about with trying to maximize leisure time with you have to commit to a particular action. To me, weirdly I think this tangentially related as usual is that having concerns and worries and things you need to do stuck in your head causes you to not be able to let them go and sort of paradoxically not maybe not paradoxical by putting them on paper they get out of your head and you stop thinking about them which like why would that be because like there's physical evidence that these things need to be done and still aren't done and nothing has changed but by writing them down just the act of writing them down makes them less anxiety provoking like okay those have been addressed they've been listed somewhere they're organized and i know where they are I don't have to think about the name anymore. Oh, I love to-do list apps. Todoist is a really good app. It allows you to do that. Instead of just like, oh, I'll do that later. You get it on there and you're like, it's going to remind me when the day comes. <laughs> yeah. And I think though, it's not just things you need to do. Like it is also those, but it's also like, what is the feared outcome I have? What am I anxious about? Like that's why journaling is helpful. Just by writing these things down, it seems like it lessens them for some reason. It's kind of like we were just talking about by looking at them and addressing them and saying them out loud it can make them seem ridiculous and stupid. But until we put a fine tip by writing them down. Again, it's kind of like the bad form of the, if I leave it in the future, it could be as good as possible. If you leave these fears unaddressed floating in your head, then it can feel much worse until you actually put a fine tip on it and then put it down and be like, okay, I'm afraid that I'm going to get mugged and lose my wallet. It's like, okay, well, if you do, then you'll deal with it. You'll get money again. You'll find your cards again. And you can take steps now to mitigate what damage might happen from that. Being mugged is something that's very on my mind right now because everyone keeps telling me I'm going to be mugged. I'm not telling you you're going to be mugged. No, everyone here. 
here, the people here that live here tell me that I'm going to be mugged. So it's like, okay, so this is actually probably a legitimate concern. Okay. Cause I thought it was like your family and friends are just being overly cautious as you've alluded to in the past. Oh, oh no, I'm, they're telling me I'm going to be murdered. The people here are telling me that I will be mugged. Don't walk alone at night, take cabs everywhere after dark. Basically at first I was interpreting this as don't leave the house after dark, which is six o'clock here. Cause it's winter here, but you can go out, just make sure you're not walking the streets, especially not alone. Oh, wow. So you, yeah, you could very easily be mugged. Okay. That's kind of scary. <laughs> Yeah, that was the upside to China is that like they really took physical threats very, very seriously. If somebody pickpocketed you and you turned around and you punched them in the face to get your wallet back, you would be in trouble because you used violence. If somebody mugs you physically, that would be really bad. But if they cleverly have sticky fingers, that's more acceptable. Here, though, it seems like, according to the people here, that if muggers who use knife or gunpoint, they will probably get away fine. It will, there will be no issues. So, yeah, it's on my mind these days. Don't get mugged. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying not to. Or at least by being aware of this concern, I've changed the contents of my wallet so that supposing I do get mugged, it won't be the end of the world. I'll only have to cancel one credit card and lose a little bit of cash. Otherwise, it's fine. Nice. Well, hopefully that's not a paradoxical outcome. That I cause it to be more likely to happen by preparing myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter if it happens. Like, if I've already cleaned my wallet out. It's fine. You're right. Hopefully not. The final one I had was actually kind of interesting, but I couldn't find it. Was This is in the physical sciences, I guess. Back in ancient Rome, they were making marble pillars to hold up different buildings, as was their design of the times. And they would have to ship these from different places, from like the quarry where somebody would be working on it, and then they'd ship it to wherever the people needed it. The problem was that it's not the most malleable materials, right? Or at least it's not the most sturdy. It's kind of brittle. If it takes a big enough shock, it'll crack and thus be useless. So they were shipping these pillars that are like eight feet or more long, so pretty big, and they have to put them on supports. They can't just lay them on the ground. They'll also roll around and probably chip and have other problems with it. So they have these cushioned support blocks of wood with grooves in them to keep them on these supports, right? So over time, they noticed that a chunk of them, a percentage of them would still break because apparently like the way will hit it and like other causes. So what would you do in the situation? If you're trying to make it less likely to break, there's two blocks they're sitting on at both ends of the pillar. What was the most logical thing you could think to do? Take it off the blocks? No, I think that has its own set of problems. What they did was they put a third support under the middle of the pillar. Okay. That seems kind of common sense. Does it? I thought that sounded like it was too easy, so I went with something different. <laughs> no, I wanted the too easy one because this is what they did. They did that. The problem was that actually increased the number of breakages. Okay. I figured there's going to be some paradox if you put something in the middle. Okay. Yeah, there is a paradox to it. It's just, I mean, obviously the whole thing is about paradoxical outcomes. So of course it's going to be paradox. We're supposed to play along. Then again, I didn't really play along with your dog one. Yeah. I'm not going to be tricked. <laughs> yeah. So they put a third block. So there's the one in the middle and the one on each end. Now that actually caused more breakages because apparently the way that it works is if over time with that much weight on it can compress a little bit, but different kinds of wood, different grains, they will compress at different rates. And so if one of those three pillars is the most compressed, if it's not the middle one, then that means there's a lot more stress right in the middle the beam causing it to crack right there whereas if there's only two supports if one of those goes down slightly it doesn't matter that much because it's still just two supports the same locations i think this was on another slatesar codex post but i couldn't find it so if anybody knows what that is please let me know but that's that's another kind of paradoxical outcome where we think ah we'll do this but then opposite outcome I mean, what's the takeaway from this? I was hoping that one would come to me as we discussed it further, but I guess just act in accordance with your values focus on the things you can actually control know that sometimes 
taking any action at all will cause the opposite to happen and you have to stop and consider whether that's true, especially in social circumstances. Trying to get somebody to like you by spending a lot of money on them will signal insecurity, thus causing them to like you less. Being flashy, being overly fawning, all these things signal insecurity and make it seem like you're not enough. So just assume that things are going to work out things will be fine. Your natural self will do the things that need to be done. And if not, I mean, there, there are things you can work on to like, just notice the things that are holding you back. And by actually looking at them, they won't paradoxically continue to exist and cause to undermine you. So all this is like basically summarizing that. Do the best you can, look at your flaws so that you can work on them and accept that you can't control outcomes. You can only control your actions. Oh, gee, you did it again. Did it again. He did it again. Sorry, I'm not going (laughs) to... He did it again. Phil Shea, celebrity. Oh my God, please no. I actually really don't really want fame. I'd rather minor fame. All you people that are listening right now, you're great. Please continue listening and, and tell people about the podcast because we're very slowly growing, but it's steadily getting there. So you're doing your part. Thank you very much. If you're not, consider it. But yeah, that's, that's all we got for today. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Oh, geez.